0: Hey, this is Paul Gilmartin from the Mental Illness Happy Hour, and you are listening to The Soul of Life. And if you happen to turn it off, your life will cease to work. So uh, pay attention. He knows what the fuck he's doing. <laughs>
1: I had a career first. I was a, actually a retail buyer for TJ Maxx. I bought $75 million of Maxx for the minimum before I uh, uh, turned my attention to studying uh,
0: medicine. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Dr. Lou Lucas, Chief of Palliative Medicine at the Nebraska and Western Iowa Veterans Healthcare Systems. As a palliative medicine physician, Dr. Lucas is trained to pull together all of the specialists that might be caring for a patient with a life-threatening disease and implement a cohesive treatment plan that cares for body, mind, and soul. And I sometimes think about myself as um, you know, a witch doctor. I'm sort
1: of one-third medical doctor, one-third psychologist, and one-third spiritual director. And so there aren't that many doctors who can have feet in all those worlds.
0: We talk especially today about the well-established link between mental health and physical health and the role of spirituality in healing.
1: Most people have a lived experience of this sense of there's something bigger than I am. I'm part of something there is more to life than, you know, things that you can count and categorize.
0: I asked Dr. Lucas to explain the mind-body connection and stress, and not just its role in autoimmune disorders like GI problems, arthritis, migraines, nerve damage, and even some cancers, but how to utilize the power of the mind to transform and heal the body. Some of your immune system is turned down. Some people
1: are probably more susceptible to cancers because their immune system isn't able to nip out those
0: aberrant cells. And Lou introduces me to a new word she invented about a year ago, palliadelic.
1: Palliadelic means to relieve suffering by revealing the
0: mind. Basically, Lou is combining palliative medicine with cutting-edge psychedelic treatments that rapidly accelerate a person's development of peace and acceptance with their identity and gives them lasting mental and emotional flexibility In the face of fear and stress. And finally, Lou affirms something you're familiar with me covering frequently here on The Soul of Life, which is the powerful and life-changing effects, similar in many ways to a psychedelic journey, of using internal family systems, IFS, as a psychotherapeutic and spiritual tool.
1: I think IFS is one of the most powerful technologies we have at this point uh, to help people work with the things that we've labeled as illness, um, whether those fall into the category that we've called mental illness or the ways we've called physical illness.
0: Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller, and this is episode 11 of season 3, Paleodelic Medicine, Emotions, Disease, and Self-Leadership.
1: The little guy with the red face will talk to them, and it's like, I'm sick and tired of you doing this bullshit. like, Oh, oh, that is not a thought that came out of like what they think of as themselves. Like that's something else talking to them. Oh, there is more living inside me than I'm aware of. And I need to find ways to open dialogue with those parts of myself. You are much more internally integrated. You can ride the waves of life because there's more to you than you thought. If the lights go out or the stars come down, I will always be right here. I don't care if no one else is around. I'm
0: right I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is the Soul of Life. Have you ever been in a position where you know that you or your family member really needs emotional support or marriage enrichment, but you find out how expensive it is to get access to high-quality, out-of-network professionals? Well, I've created the Soul of Life community just for this. At community.souloflifeshow.com, you can join for free and be part of a network of caring and supportive people having conversations that can bring healing to your soul. It's there that you'll find access to psychoeducational courses to deal with stress, anxiety, and relationship conflict. For example, right now I'm offering a seven-week immersive course for couples called Mindful Marriage that walks people through a mindfulness-based stress reduction curriculum I designed that really gives couples in conflict a map towards stability, trust, and deeper intimacy. Just go to community.souloflifeshow.com. Check out the courses and join for free to be part of the Soul of Life community of learners and soul seekers. Dr. Lou Lucas is Chief of Palliative Medicine at the VA Nebraska and Western Iowa Health Center. She's also an Associate Professor and Site Director of VA Inpatient Palliative Medicine and Associate Professor of Palliative Medicine at the University of Nebraska. I'm here today to speak with Dr. Lucas about physicians' health and mental health and their care and quality of life for people with terminal illness. How does a physician take care of themselves or a healer take care of themselves and prevent or deal with burnout and their own health issues? We'll also speak today about pale- something very interesting called paleodelic medicine. So uh, it's a great to have you, Dr. Lucas. How are you today? I'm well, thanks. I want to kind of ask you if you can describe off the top here what palliative medicine is for the average person that's not a physician.
1: Sure. Palliative medicine is described as an extra layer of service for people with serious illness. Um, And I think most people have the lived experience or at least people who have serious illness have the experience of they have lots of people who are focusing on small parts of their body, but not very many people who are putting the whole thing together who have that special expertise in dealing with illnesses that might be life threatening. Um, So palliative medicine was... Um, born out of the hospice movement when they realized there was a specific need for doctors who were trained in this. So we're trained in, um, excellent communication skills. Um, and I sometimes think about myself as, um, you know, a witch doctor. I'm sort of one third medical doctor, one third psychologist and one third spiritual director. We have so little language for it, right? Because most people's, uh, perceptions are wrapped up around religion and they have lots of judgment, good and bad about religion. And you say, well, no, it's not really about religion. It's about right. something else. Right. Um, and so I think developing language uh, with people about how to talk about these things meaningfully because I think it impacts healing in huge ways. And I think you shared that, of course.
0: Yeah, I do. Uh, w- what would you say if you could put your finger on it? What's that something else that you're that you're hoping to bring in?
1: You know, I have this sense that In our culture in particular, we've really tilted towards uh, the logical, rational parts of ourselves, and there's a lot of reality that is based, that is not logical and not rational, uh, and can't be perceived with those terms, and when you try to reduce it to those terms, it sounds corny. But most people have a lived experience of this sense of there's something bigger than I am. I'm part of something. There is more to life than you know things that you can count and categorize. Um, And so it's that sense of a greater sense of possibility and a greater sense of connection uh, with something meaningful.
0: Right. Yeah. Connection is a is an important word, and Mm -hmm. and meaning is important. Those are things that you're, you're. It sounds like you're saying we we don't always if we can't find the answers that may not be. We may not be asking the right question,
1: <laughs> right? We're not asking the right questions, and we and we don't have necessarily the best tools.
0: Yeah, yeah, sounds and, like it. Yeah,
1: and, and I'm sorry, we've really overvalued this sense of, you know, if I can count it, if I can check it off on a checkbox, if I have a list, if I can do those things, then it's real. Uh, but if I can't do those things, then uh, it's something else.
0: Right, right. I'm I'm struck by how uh, some of the some of the latest science coming out in neurobiology and the, the brain when we think about what a healthy mind is. It's not how smart a person is or how well they test or perform. It's actually how well they tolerate ambiguity yes. or uncertainty. That's a healthy yes. mind.
1: Absolutely. And the ability to remain creative in the face of stress, the ability to be adaptive. Um, I think that those are things that are really the signs of a strong um, and healthy mind.
0: How did you get into this work? What what drew you to this? And is there a, is there a personality type, if you will, of of physicians that would that would find themselves doing this kind of work versus I don't know um, something that is a little more like you know here take this pill and do this surgical intervention?
1: Yeah, um, you know it's interesting. I don't know. If pe- I'm sure people have created typologies of the different kinds of people who go into medicine, um, but they there. Um, are a group of us who, you know, we, we uh, peel off the the herd at different times in our careers. Um, but you see people who are who are more holistic, so more looking at whole the, the whole person. They are um, more willing to deal with that ambiguity and not be so locked into. Well, if it's not in that textbook, it doesn't exist. Um, a lot of willingness to do your own personal work. Because if you're not doing your own personal work, you really can't be uh, in the thick of it with your patients. Um, And what I find interesting is that we have a palliative medicine training program, a fellowship at the University of Nebraska. And we have had, uh, our first fellow is uh, someone who's been practicing for three years. And she recognized that the skills that she had weren't enough to do her job uh, in in a critical care unit and that she really needed to come back and do this. And now in our next two years, we will have mid-career people who kind of recognize like, oh, this is important work and I need more training in it. Hmm. Um, Because a lot of what we do is around language and communication and connection. A lot of people sometimes think that, well, I know how to talk to people, so I know how to do this work. Um, And they don't understand how complex, you know, this, we create reality when we use our words, right? Uh, when we, and when we're working with people with serious illness, they often don't have the the categories and a space to think about what's wrong with them or how they're going to live their, their lives in, in this because they just don't have the experience with it. So you kind of have to talk your way into helping them understand that there's more available to them. Um, and those are really Complicated skills, and mm-hmm. certainly people who go into the more therapeutically oriented professions, uh, the people who go into you know counseling, social work, and people who go into psychology have more fluency there. Um, but we don't do a great job of, of training physicians with those skills.
0: Right, right, and, and even in psychology and social work, all the the treating field, psychotherapy, and you use the term doing your your own work, and that's that's a reference really to having some. Reflective practice or maybe having your own counseling, being a patient yourself, right? Yes. In some way.
1: Well, yeah. and Thinking of, um, I think when people see themselves in treatment, they think they are a patient. And if you're a patient, then you're naturally weak. And so you don't Mm. want to admit you're in that position. But I find that you just need a thought partner uh and you can be doing this for self growth and really to understand all of your dimensions more fully so that you can be more resilient and more thoughtful and more creative um uh, in the face of whatever reality throws at you
0: right right and for you personally what w- what were some of the 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 forks in the road that brought you to this place was it always something that you you went after in your training
1: uh, by the time, well, I'm, I'm an atypical medical, uh, student because I had a career first. I was a, actually a retail buyer for TJ Maxx. Oh, wow. 70, I bought $75 million of Maxx for the minimum before I, uh, uh, turned my attention to studying, uh, medicine. But I grew up in a household that was not particularly healthy. And so, By the time I was in my early 20s, uh, I got into my early 20s thinking like, oh, great, I escaped. I'm not an alcoholic. Everything's fine. And then it was like, oh, things are not fine. Um, And I found my way into therapy and really understood how important that was. And so I came into the study of medicine with a personal portfolio of work and knowing what happens to just kids in like in households that wouldn 't look that bad on the outside right. uh, and and what happens to people and then um because I had had a career, I worked with people who had serious illness um, and so came to it with a little bit more fluency. Then, when I was in uh, my medical training, I actually had a semester where I lost a surprising number of people um in my life my uh, father died. Um, two uncles, a cousin, and our family dog in the space literally of one academic semester. Oh my! Goodness. And I felt like, oh, I, you know, got my, you know, my thesis in how people deal with serious illness and all the different ways that people dealt with it um, in our family. Um, and it was interesting because even though I was just a med student at the time, my family turned to me as if I knew what I was doing because. People don't know what they're doing in that space, right? When you're, right. You, when you're a husband or your child or someone is sick, um, y- you need a guide. Um, so even at that early part of my career, I was in a place um, to help guide people through that.
0: And certainly, you you were handed a series of, of losses that sounded like became your teacher in some way and or instructor. Yeah. Um, but you also had a, a natural skill or leadership set that people look to, and even in your family,
1: sure. Um, yeah, it was a, a a tough place, but you get through those things, and if you do it with an open heart, you grow through them.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah you mentioned. Well, we, we're we're both acquainted with. Uh, we we're mutually we're mutually acquainted with Dick Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems Therapy IFS, which I want to talk with you about because I know that's impacted your life and your career. Um, and IFS, I mean, I think we should give. I want to give some kind of uh respect to the disease model that's, you know, that's kind of typical medicine. Like we you know people come in because they're sick and people um, seek help because they're stuck with something. And that actually helps. I mean, the disease model in certain ways, you know, prior to that, we didn't have, we just blamed people for for being, uh, drunk all the time instead of saying, no, this is something you're struggling with and there's a pattern here and there's a system. It's, we can call it an illness. So coming up with labels is a great innovation for us in our, in medicine for sure, but also those labels create problems, right? And, and, uh, one of the innovations of IFS and, and other mindfulness based types of practices and mindfulness is now being introduced at medis- medical schools everywhere, right. pretty much. Um, is that you know this idea of disease? It's it's not, it's not a it's not a sentence. It's not a it's not a a box you're in. It's it's just a state. It's a part of you that's in pain, perhaps or or struggling or overwhelmed. Uh, how is IFS? Well, let's talk about IFS for a little bit and maybe give people a, a kind of an overview of what that is first. And oh, absolutely. How,
1: yeah. Um, I think IFS is one of the most powerful technologies we have at this point uh, to help people work with the things that we've labeled as illness, um, whether those fall into the category that we've called mental illness or the ways we've called physical illness. Um, So uh, internal family systems is um, uh, a therapeutic model and, and set of techniques that is predicated on the idea that our mind is not monolithic. You don't have a single person who is Lou Lucas and it's always that same um, entity that really our minds are a constellation of uh, little sub-personalities that have Uh, Their own wants, needs, uh, and desires. And at all times, they're sort of negotiating inside with who gets control of your body and who gets to determine what the actions are and who makes decisions around here. Um, And, uh, you know, Dick stumbled upon it when he was working with uh, women with eating disorders. And he recognized that uh, the tools that he had as a family systems therapist were not adequate um, to their needs. I was really lucky uh, in that I had had some experience with. There are some different models that look at this uh, idea of the mind being different parts. There's, you know, voice dialogue therapy and Gestalt therapy, um, and a few um, things in organizational psychology um, that deal with this idea. But no one put it together in the way that Dick did, which was to put it in the way, uh, the form of a system, and to really see the inner relationships of those parts to each other. And he also helped us understand and bring in this idea of um, in, in within this model. It's called self. Um, for me, the word soul makes much more sense. In right. that, uh, and and the way I've visualized this is sort of it's a two dimensional piece. Where if you think that. If you've got these, if you've got a mind, the mind is here in this space time continuum and the mind's job is to help you navigate the terrain of the world around you. And so you need a repertoire of lots of different skills to be able to get through, through that. And it, if you were the uh, perfect child of a perfect family who had never experienced want or need or, or trauma, you are sort of born and these roles develop over time and you can navigate the world. But since no human has ever had such an existence, uh, those roles, um, some of them get damaged along the way, especially little ones. Um, And they continue to carry the energy of an injured child. Um, And just like anybody who's been in a grocery store when a toddler is going off in the cereal aisle and everybody in the 100,000 square foot store knows about it when you've got that kind of pain or distress in your system, the rest of the system's like, you know, put a lid on that. Right. And so other parts of those, other um, parts or roles within your system shift out of their job that they would like to do. And they kind of get the part-time job of finding ways to either shut up that part and cover it up and hide it, um, or to throw out a hand grenade and throw out something that so, oh no, don't look at this part, look over there. Um, and so those parts aren't available to do their day job. Um, and they're doing some things that maybe they're not the best at. And so you end up with a system that isn't as balanced and isn't, um, as able and adaptive as it could be.
0: I want to, I want to run back to one thing that you said, um, that sounds important when you, when you mentioned soul, Lou, that, sure. that this idea of self, which IFS refers to as self, is, is really a, like a person's soul. It's not something that is a, It's not something constructed, right? That's, it's not like a concept. It's an actual, like everyone's born with it. Everyone has it, no matter how they're acting or behaving or how ill they are at that moment. They actually have a fully functioning soul or self that has certain capacities to, to deal with what you were describing, I think, which are these imbalances.
1: Absolutely. And you know, I got um, excited about my description of the way these parts work together. But what I started out with is this idea that we've got parts that are designed to work with the physical world and help us adapt to different things. They've got different jobs. Um, but there's a different part of us. So that's that horizontal axis, where there's a vertical axis that connects us to, it feels like something else. Something um, deeper. It is something It's Something deeper, something more. And it is timeless and placeless. Uh, It it doesn't have agenda. It's content just with the mere existence. Right. Um, And when I was talking earlier about, you know, medicine being tilted towards that logical, what we've tilted away from is this transcendent state that's available in all of us. Right. Um, And the mystical traditions get into this a lot, but our scientific and philosophical traditions have virtually ignored it. And so IFS allows us to bring that together. You
0: know, we we know that the body's stress response really... Can produce symptoms in the body, right? We know this now. I think even as early as or as late as the eighties, there were still medical journals publishing work that says there's no connection between emotions and disease or illness. Um, but what's, what's your experience with that? How the body can, you know, attack itself and that sort of thing.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because the body does two things. Um, or, or, or it can do two things as a result of emotion. One of them is that we know that uh, heightened stress levels produce this, you know just a flooding of your body with catecholamines, uh, flooding of your body uh, with cortisol, your sort of your stress response hormones. And if you're in that milieu for long enough, it dampens down your immune processes. And so some of your immune system is turned down and that's what makes you more susceptible to you know, people know that they get a cold after they've finished like a very a stressful period. Um, some people are probably more susceptible to cancers because their immune system isn't able to nip out those aberrant cells. But what we see a lot of is on the opposite end are people's immune
0: system that is revved up. Please take the time now to subscribe to the Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review
1: but instead it mistakes. When you're talking about the immune system, the job of the immune system is to know the difference between self and non-self. And it's interesting. I haven't thought about the fact that self is in the middle of that, Uh, but it means like the things that are are part of your body and the things that are not part of your body. So it knows that a bacteria doesn't belong there. But what happens is that we have a, a constellation of illnesses that we call autoimmune illnesses or immune moderated illnesses where, um, often painful and distressing things. And the joints and the gut are the like two rheumatoid things. arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis and lots of the arthritis entities um, and lots of things that reside in the gut are closely related to these stressed um, situations. And if we can modulate that, we can change um, how the body's perceiving those experiences. Um, and we're probably just at the beginning of understanding how those things really work together and how... We, right now, we're hitting um, hitting the body over the head. Uh, we've just developed these uh, immune modulators uh, for rheumatoid arthritis and for some some cancers. And I think over time, we'll find that we're you know like using a sledgehammer, and that we have a lot of these things inside our body, inside our mind, because you know our mind um, controls the nervous system, and the nervous system is connected to every single fiber in your body, and and. It, it's the communication pathway. And so if you can change the patterns that your uh, brain is sending down to your body, you can probably change the way your body is responding and the way you experience that. It's
0: a really hopeful, hopeful message. I I, I know uh, these two books are beyond the scope of our conversation here, but I would refer people to my interview with uh, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, his book, The Body Keeps the Score. And also Gabor Maté, uh, in his, his book, The Body, When the Body Says No, which is really talking about the same thing, the body's ability to recognize self and non-self and how sometimes caretakers, people, I think they see often there's a correlation between people who are caretakers in their family or, or professional caretakers and these autoimmune diseases.
1: Well, interestingly, and, um, uh, migraine as well, uh, And what uh, I don't know if uh, Dick had the opportunity to talk about um, one of the studies in IFS, but they worked with women who had um, rheumatoid arthritis. And what they frequently found is exactly what you described this. There are women who are caretakers in their family, and the only time they could say no is if they were sick. And mm-hmm. this, we find that, you know, people who, who suffer from migraine disorder, people like, sure, their body has the natural, you know, you have the vasospasm that's causing pain, you know, that you experience as a migraine. But if a part's like, oh, if, if you go down from that, you don't have to do that party that you were planning on, or you don't have to be part of this event that was going to stress you out because you can, you now have a good excuse. Here, let me give right. you that excuse. And um, I think one of the things that's, fascinating about IFS because first we talked about it being a non-pathologizing model. But um, I just saw the... the uh, uh, Dick has a new book out called No Bad Parts. And people are really quick to blame uh, the migraines. Like, oh, the migraine's bad. I hate it. Oh, the cancer's bad. I hate it. It's like, what's the cancer trying to teach you? What's hmm. the migraine trying to teach you? And when you realize if you stop and slow it down and you say... This limit. This part is just doing the best it can to help make the system uh, work a little bit better. And if you can respect it for, gosh, you're trying so hard. You know what would you rather be doing than this? How can I help you with this? Then that part can can relax a little bit because it wants to be part of the system. It's just trying. It just is trying with the logic of a five year old or a seven year old, which is not enough to get through adult life.
0: Right. Right. And, and the first thing that came up for me when you just said that, when you, when you describe for people how they would maybe perhaps interact with or begin to have a relationship with, with cancer is I would imagine terror. You know, you're telling me I have to get closer to and actually somehow respect like in a relationship, this thing that is, that I think is trying to kill me. Well, I feel afraid. I want to run away from it.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I have a fabulous. <laughs> Um, story of a person that I worked with um, who had a particularly uh, challenging cancer course. It was one of the cancers that like, we don't know what kind of cancer it is. It's so far along. We don't even know where it came from. Uh, So it was very serious. Um, And he waded through, we we started doing some IFS work and he waded through several memories that were very challenging because like you suggested, he had a lot of anxiety around this, wasn't being able to sleep. So we started with that, but we worked down through the protectors that were making him anxious to a point that he was actually able to communicate in a different way with the cancer. He's like, well, what does the cancer want you to know? And he said like, that it's smart. Mm he it wants me to know that like how talented it is at like evading all these things all you know all of my immune defenses and getting around and like it just wants me to know what, it's smart and it's like well what do you think about that and he said i can respect that that's a worthy that's a worthy opponent and just that sense of Coming to terms with this thing that was going on, it didn't feel so much like he was a victim. It felt more like he was in a judo match. It
0: gives me chills.
1: Um, doesn't it? Oh,
0: you doesn't know, it just it? begins to change. You can feel, I, I can feel my body responding to that.
1: Sure. You know, sure. And yeah. Imagine how it would be if we, you know, of course we don't want the cancer to take your life. Sometimes we don't have any choice in the matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, so we can use it as a learning experience. But if we, Caught things earlier, and if we worked with them differently, maybe we could help the body's internal chemistry change its approach. Right, right, and maybe if we if we did that, we would have more energy available to actually turn down what's going on with the cancer.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You, that's such an important word. It sounds like Lou. Energy. Yeah, is that if you offer or if you have a way to get me in touch with more hope. I feel more energy as a result of that. Well, well, energy seems to serve all sorts of purposes in the body.
1: Sure, and when we have these parts uh, that are in combat with other parts, we call them polarities. You have, you know, one part that's trying to hide and one part that's trying to get attention, and the two of them are at war with each other. Um, that takes up a lot of energy, all yep. in the defense of keeping the system balanced. But it's a lot of energy, and so if you can release that energy from there, then you get. Ah, uh, the ability for healing, and when you get the healing, you get even more energy,
0: yeah, yeah, right. I mean, like a typical polarity might be somebody who maybe gets really angry or, or or you know maybe abuses a substance and then feels really ashamed afterwards and beats themselves up and says, "I shouldn't have done that, and I'm a terrible person, and then that that sure. brings them, they don't realize it, but that's setting up the next phase of the cycle where the, now I have to drink to get rid of this shame. <laughs>
1: exactly exactly it's like i'm ashamed i'm gonna go hide and then i'm socially isolated and i feel badly about it and so now i'm just gonna you know go you know go get drunk with some friends like oh well you know and and then and then it's like oh i got drunk again and then you go bury yourself and it's that cycle over and over again
0: you also used a, a term when we were speaking earlier um paleodelic Wow. Huh. Pali, And that's, uh-huh. that's new to me, but I am yeah, familiar with psychedelic assisted therapy. And that's something of interest for me and many people now. So I'm curious if that's related.
1: Yeah. So, um, paleodelic is new to you because it's new to everyone because I kind of coined it about a year, year or two ago. Uh, and we, if, and we actually have a website called paleodelic.org, uh, to just, uh, that's the, um, uh, website of our research group. So uh, paleodelic means to relieve suffering by revealing the mind. Mm. And for me, it's that interface of recognizing humans who are suffering. And in my place, it's people who usually have life-threatening illness. Uh, But all of these ways of suffering, people who've experienced trauma, whether it's uh, military trauma, sexual trauma, identity-based traumas, uh, legacy traumas, uh, people who have serious chronic illnesses, people who have addictive disorders, those are all forms of suffering. And um, I think that we're approaching a place where we have new tools. And the new tools are um, the psychedelic um, agents, which seem to be a catalyst or a key inside the human brain and the human mind. What these agents appear to do is relax the mind and, um, particularly they relax the stories we hold about each our, ourselves. Um, and if these stories, uh, the, the, the way you think of, you know, I am Lou Lucas and I am a doctor and I am a this and I am a that, it's like, oh, let's just let that relax. And so the sense of there's a, within uh, psychedelic substances, people experience something called ego dissolution where your ability to hold together your story of who you are just dissolves. And of course, that's a terrifying experience because it feels like you're about to die uh, or, or the person you know of yourself. And I think it's interesting from a Christian perspective, like you have to die to yourself to be born again. Uh, that There's a sense of that the way you know yourself dies. And in that relaxing, it gives you access to your psyche, to the inner workings of your mind in ways that are not possible without either decades of meditative practice or these agents that exist in nature. We're on the verge of those substances being re-regulated so we're able to use them medically. Um, I'm involved with it because I'm doing a trial uh, of uh, existential distress in people with uh, inoperable pancreatic cancer.
0: Wow. That's amazing. I'll refer people also to the episode. I, uh, spoke with Dr. Mithofer, uh, and he's, he's wonderful. He, he's been the lead investigator, um, for the MDMA trials that have been approved by the FDA for the first time. So he's really kind of, um, uh, shepherded that drugs approval through the FDA uh, process. And, uh, and there's even, and this is, they're very different drugs, but, um, things like ketamine. Being approved in uh, even like a nasal spray for for treatment resistant depression, and that's that's um, um spravada I believe that's called. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you're so you're speaking about the dissolution of the ego that um that is so so elusive when we are really kind of in our rigid roles, right? When we are thinking about ourselves, thinking kind of creates this um almost it it, it keeps pushing away our ability to to get underneath and get curious and really open up ourselves.
1: Absolutely. When we think we know exactly who we are, we're, we're limiting who we can be. Right. right. Um, I was um, really lucky to work with a scholar at the University of Michigan named Carl Weick, who is in organizational psychology. And he talked about how people make sense of unexpected events. Um, you know, why do, why do disasters happen? Why do things happen? And it's often because people can't see the cues that are out there about things that are about to go wrong. And one of the reasons they can't see them or they can't act on them is because of their sense of identity. Um, And the more rigid and narrow your sense of who you are is, the less you're able to see and the less creativity you have in terms of what you can do. Uh, But if your personality is more plastic and you're able to see different facets of yourself, um... And define yourself differently. You know, like, you know, the accountant might not ever do this, but the person who's the mother might be able to do that. Uh, so the, the accountant might never be able to go over and, you know, reach around and hug the person whose, you know, life's been devastated by bankruptcy. But if you think it's like, oh, if I use my maternal energy, then that makes perfect sense for me. Mm, and so just yeah. that idea of how you can use the different aspects of yourself. Um, and so I came into um, learning about IFS with this perspective, like, oh, this idea of, of Identity is so different than, than what, you know, if you have that rigid sense of who you must be to be successful, that's part of our pain.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier that it can be really terrifying to have this experience and in, in what we might consider maybe like a bad trip. But the, I want to ask you to speak about how different the, the these trials are and how different psychedelic assisted therapy is compared to somebody just taking a street drug.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, they're um, just so markedly different. And it, it, even from the basics of when you're buying something on the street, you don't even have any idea what you're taking or how much you're taking or what you're taking it with or what it's been adulterated with. Um, and so those are first entirely different experiences. Um, within these scientific settings, first, these are substances that we don't prescribe for people. So this is not like medical marijuana where you say, you know, here, you know, eat, eat an edible every day or, or mm-hmm. something like that. That, um, these are, um, experiences that are crafted through the use of these, uh, drugs. So, um, you used a term bad trip and a bad trip can be defined as, um, a situation of, um, Panic or distress arising from a lack of preparation and support. Um, and so, and that's, you know, you can imagine why that would happen if you took a substance that has the ability to dissolve your ego if you were, you know, drunk in an unsafe environment with a bunch of people you don't trust. <laughs> yeah. so that's, that's, a, that's a predicate for disaster. Right. Um, you anyway, know, if I gave somebody a handful of, you know, chemotherapy drugs and said, oh, just take it wherever you want, like you'd have dead people all over the place. <laughs> So there's a reason that these things are, are regulated. We, we put them in the hands of people who are trained for a reason. And other cultures, you know, indigenous cultures did have uh, a cultural container. Uh, they weren't, you know, used rec- uh, recreationally. They were used ceremonially and ritually in our studies and the way we're approaching it is that this is an experience that we're cultivating. uh, And it comes in three parts. It's set, substance, and, uh, and setting. So the set is the mindset that you're bringing into it. We ask people to cultivate an intention and to prepare their minds to receive something that is different than they've experienced. There's a setting which is a very safe place that they've been introduced to. Um, it's a living room-like setting in most cases. It's very comfortable and you're supported by the presence of guides who can work with you. And so you go through a period of preparation of, you know, several hours at least, but usually over a space of a couple of weeks, uh you'll meet with people and, and process and get ready. You'd spend one day in a dosing session, and psilocybin has a, a, an active period of about six hours. Mm-hmm. So we bring people in at eight in the morning. We, you know, kind of get everything ready for an hour. We give somebody a capsule at nine, um, and then they spend six hours going through the journey of uh, uh, revealing their minds to themselves. And we've talked about self energy and that sense of there's something bigger, something. Uh, deeper inside us. And people who work with psychedelics acknowledge a healing energy that the mind knows where it needs to go. And if you're just willing and able to relax, it will take you to to the things that you need to experience. Those things might be terrifying. Those things might be extraordinarily challenging. But those, that, those are the things that need healing. Right. And if you bring your attention to those things and can allow that to manifest, it loses its energy, it loses its charge and its valence. And so the reason we spend so much work with the preparation and developing the relationship with guides is that we can assure you that without regard to what you believe you are experiencing in your mind, it's all your your body and your mind telling you the story that it needs to tell you. Your body's perfectly safe here with us. Right. You go and do this work inside and will be there on the other side and, and, and to catch you. And when they come out, people are um, uh, just amazed at the experiences that they've had. And people can have glorious experiences that are uh, epiphanies and feel like they've met de- deities and have been resolved. And other people who cry for six hours yeah. and they're like, I cried a river and they you know first it started out as the plat and then it turned into the Missouri and then it was the Nile and then it was the world river and all. And I was grieving for the world and saying, like, and how do you feel? And it's like, fabulous. Hmm. Um, and so people have uh, lots of different experiences. Um, but if you go through the clinical work that's been done so far and look in the literature, years after people have had a single experience in one of these clinical experiences, they still say that that's one of the, you know top either the top or one of the top five most important uh, spiritually or personally meaningful experiences of their lives.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Could you ever imagine a medical program sort of endorsing this as part of like the prerequisite for, becoming a healer said that a healer that doesn't burn out and and yeah
1: well that you know I don't know if I'm gonna live long enough to see that but it's certainly one of my goals uh, you know and, and I'm sort of in this very unique situation where um, I knew the people at Hopkins when I lived in Baltimore uh, and I was actually in one of their healthy volunteer studies which is how I became personally uh, aware of uh, the power of psychedelics I so had bit that too- personal journey. Right, right. I'm a little bit too old to have made it like into the the end of the 60s where everybody was doing it. Uh, But I was always aware of it and was very curious about it. And so when I had the opportunity to participate, um, I jumped on it. But interesting, like, and I got a lot out of it was very meaningful. And about a year after that, I took my, uh, IFS level one training. And as soon as I got that map, it's like, Oh my God. And I could immediately, I'm, I'm going to use the term flashback, but I don't mean it in that scary sense, but it was just like, I could see different parts in this journey. It's like, Oh, that was this part doing this. And what I saw, and I didn't know how to make sense of like, Oh, those were parts doing this. Hmm. And so I, it was just the, the language and the, the, terrain laid out by IFS made so much sense in terms of that, that I knew immediately that there was a way to do the work together.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Some people have spoken to me about how uh, systematically, kind of hypnotic, IFS can be in that you know what there was one person was a hypnotist I interviewed and he said yeah you guys are doing hypnosis like and actually you're doing it probably better than us <laughs> 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 you know and, and that's not something that's not a term most of the IFS therapists like myself use but it is. Something we often describe as a sort of a moment by moment experience. It's not just chatting and kind of strategizing and like problem solving your life's issues. It's actually asking you to turn your attention inwardly. And sometimes people experience that as like mindfulness or meditation, but then we start to interact with what you're seeing, hearing, feeling, and then, and then facilitating that those interactions.
1: Sure. And it's interesting. So I, as a a doctor who works with serious illness, I'm doing family meetings constantly. Mm. And IFS is just an internal family meeting. Right. And and I think that for the people who are listening to this, who have not had a personal experience with an IFS uh, encounter, it's really, really hard to get it. Uh, Because you're just like, what are you guys talking about? And that doesn't make any sense to me. But as soon as you do it, it's amazing to me because if you are uh, can approach these entities that you encounter, you know, it's like if you just start with uh like, huh, you know, where do you feel that in your that anxiety in your body? It's like well, I feel it here. Well, you know, imagine, you know, what is, what does that feel like? It's like, oh, it's like this little kid with his his face is all red and his fists are clenched. It's like, huh, how do you feel towards that part? Like, oh, well, I, I hate it. It's like, well, let the part that hates it step away. Okay, now how do you feel towards it? Like, oh, he looks miserable. It's like, do you feel some compassion towards me, totally. Like let him know you feel that compassion, and then so and, and you open this dialogue, and then you ask like, so what do you want me to know? And well, the most surprising people thing that people re, re, uh, report is that the little guy with the red face will talk to them, and it's like I'm sick and tired of you doing this bullshit. Like oh. Oh, and and that that is not a thought that came out of like what they think of as themselves. Like that's something else talking to them. Mm-hmm. And when you're able to be be in that place of like, oh, there is more living inside me than I'm aware of, and I need to find ways to open dialogue with those parts of myself, then you re- realize just how rich and complex you are. Yeah. And if you can allow those parts to, you know, have their say. Um, they are much more available to you and you are much more internally integrated um, than you are otherwise. And and then you have a sense that you're better grounded, that you can ride the waves of life because you, there's more to you than you thought. And if part of you isn't getting what it wants, another part of you maybe is getting what it needs. Right. Uh, and, and, right. and it really just helps you in, in so many ways. I wish uh,
0: everyone could have that experience and not just wait until... Some life catastrophe, like a divorce or a terminal illness or something, to, to bring them to this breaking point of saying, okay, well, I'll open up to some something I haven't thought about before.
1: Well, and that is the conundrum, right? Because we have a world full of people who are just aching, right? Mm. You know, like you, you watch the news and you've just got people who are just so inflamed and infuriated and It's a distressed. spiritual but crisis of it's, the world. Absolutely, absolutely, and we reserve these healing modalities for people who are able to self define and people who have insurance coverage and people yeah. who uh, who can be part of a clinical trial
0: right sort um, of it 's a privilege yeah to to get this sort of treatment yeah. that,
1: and when you talk to uh, like Roland Griffiths, who is the uh, scientist who brought a lot of the psychedelic therapies and made them available to us because of his uh, Rigorous, the Rigorous work he did. Uh, you know, I was very excited to say, Oh, look, it looks like we're going to be able to use these things for people with cancer. And he's like, But, you know, why do we have to wait for people to have cancer? Uh, so he talks about uh, using these substances for the betterment of healthy people.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, like, how do you, it's, it's, it's one thing to take people from below par and bring them up to level. But what if you take people who are level and go, like, Oh, now I can actually be more loving? Right. Now I can be more open. Now I can be more compassionate that would do us a lot of good.
0: It would be amazing. Well, it, it's it sounds like you're doing a lot of good and it's so wonderful to meet you, Dr. Lou Lucas. Would you like to say more about where people can find out about your work or where they can get involved with accessing this kind of care that you're describing um, for themselves?
1: Sure. Uh, so uh, our uh, team's website is paleodelic.org. Um, and there's just a little bit of information about our field in general and the research that we're doing. Uh, these days there's a lot of work about um, psychedelics, uh, and there's a lot to be to be found outside. Um, there's an organization called the Hefter Institute that's curated lots of videos of people who are talking about uh, their experience. And I find those are very helpful. The people at the USONA Institute, um, who are one of the sponsors for um, psilocybin in terms of becoming a regulated or an appropriately regulated drug, um, have resources available. Um, And there are just a couple of people doing really good work that, you know, the Aquilino Cancer Center in Maryland is a group who are who have actually opened a center for, uh, for healing for cancer patients. Um, and they're doing some uh, clinical trials within their cancer center. They have some new MDMA work available. Um, and there are about six of us um, in the country now who have trials that are either in progress um, or are about to start. Um, so if you just start looking around, you will start finding them.
0: That's great. I'll put a link to paleodelic.org on my, on the show notes for this, but that is spelled P-A-L-L-I-A-D-E-L-I-C dot O-R-G. Dr. Lou Lucas, thank you so much for being with me today. It's great to meet you. Thanks so much. It's been great. Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness, and relationship growth. Head on over to show to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or, or hear more, or get access to courses and, and support each other through life. That's what this is all about. Please leave an iTunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life.
1: I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrop. All
0: right, I will go.